Welcome back, Cracked fans, to another edition of the Cracked Interviews Podcast. I'm your host, Alex Gruskin. We've had so many cool interviews on this podcast over the past couple of weeks. Carlos Silva of World Team Tennis, the CEO, he came on last week. Jared Hiltzik, a current ATP professional, came on, gave his opinion on the ITF transition tour. So it's been so much fun for us to get to talk to a wide spectrum of guests that's going to be the theme of today's podcast as well. Now, for you listeners that don't know, I grew up with a coach by the name of Ed Nagel. He spent a couple of years at Pepperdine playing his college tennis, and boy, did he have a lot of stories. I mean, he was a preacher. Don't get me wrong. He was one who could talk even better than I could. Maybe that's who I get it from, and if so, I apologize, listeners. Uh, but oh my God, did he regale me with stories of, you should have seen that, you, you know, I was I was a doubles player back in the day and we're doing drills and he would say, oh, when I was at Pepperdine, the Joneses, Kelly Jones, Jerome Jones, that was a doubles team, the lefty-righty combo, they knew when to come in. And so today's guest is near and dear to my heart. He is, as I mentioned, a former University of Pepperdine, All-American in singles and doubles, the 1984 NCAA men's doubles champion and the recently named executive director of First Break Academy. Jerome Jones, welcome to the Cracked Interviews Podcast. Hey, Alex. Thanks very much for having me. I really appreciate it. Thanks for all the uh, the work that you do. I mean, it, you you do an awesome job of bringing tennis to the people, and that's, that's great. I appreciate that. No, I, I very much appreciate you saying that. Although, uh, leave the flattery to me. I should be the one flattering you because, you know, you're the one taking the time so kindly to come on this podcast, which we so much appreciate at Cracked Rackets. Uh, even before we get into the First Break Academy stuff, because, you know, that's the the main reason I wanted to have you on to talk about that, uh, I feel like we should set the back, uh, you know, set the stage for our listeners, explain why this job and why you are such a perfect fit for it. I know you come from Los Angeles. Uh, how did you get into the game of tennis and, you know, wh- why is it something you've stuck with throughout your life? Yeah, I I grew up in in public, in the public parks. And um, I started. I got into a schools program, believe it or not, I, around fifth grade or so. That's when I was first exposed to the game. And I realized after I think that six week program that I kind of had a knack, a knack for it. <laughs> and and, um, and Alex, you there? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah, I realized I had a knack for it, and. Um, and then that summer, my dad and I, we went into a, a sporting goods store. I think he had to pick up some tube socks or something. And um, in the sporting goods store, it was a little tennis department. And we started talking to this guy, and, and uh, he pulled off a, a Jack Kramer Jr. racket and showed me. And he said, why don't you come and join the, uh, the summer program across the street? And... Well, what the heck? I wasn't doing anything that summer, and and I kind of remember enjoying tennis, and and uh, got into that summer program, and again uh, started enjoying it, and noticed I had a, a knack for the game, and I started winning a little bit. I started getting a little taste of winning. I won a, my first tournament that uh, that summer, and uh, really, I just kind of went from there. Just started playing Southern Cal tournaments, and which led to national tournaments and and all of that, but. Um, I mean, that's how I got into the game. So it's just a, kind of a normal, regular progression. 
Yeah, it's funny you mentioned Southern California. My usual Great Shot podcast co-host, Max Rothman, comes from Southern California. He swears it's the best region in the country for developing tennis talent. I'm sure you're equally as biased as he is, but would you agree with his assessment? Uh, it's certainly one of the best. And I, I mean, obviously we have the benefit of having pretty good weather year-round here. So, I mean, I, I think coming up, and I'm sure it's kind of the same now, is you know, Southern Cal and Texas, Florida, you know, all those places where you can play outdoors for the most part year round. But yeah, we did have some, we had some players uh, coming out of here uh, back in that, those times. And you, you talked about growing up on the public parks. Uh, you, you know, we get back to the first break Academy. I think they're trying to promote tennis, bring it to people who wouldn't have been exposed to it otherwise. Um, but for you growing up in that sort of situation, you know, exposing yourself first to tennis through that, then playing some tournaments, when did college tennis become a part of your, you know, thought process? Probably, you know, when I was in, 16, 15, 14, 16 or so when when I realized that I could compete on a national level. I think I played my first national tournament when I was 14. Um, and uh, once I felt, I saw that I could compete on a national level, I really, that's when I started thinking about, you know, colleges and where I wanted to play and uh, who I wanted to play for. And of course, you end up at Pepperdine. Was it the beautiful Malibu beaches? You're just like, this is a school. I can go here. Yeah, I'm doing it. Yeah, well, that that was a big part of it. <laughs> I have to say, you know, I was re- I was recruited by Harvard, and and uh, but once they saw my transcript, uh, you know, I, I stopped getting I stopped getting calls for some reason, you know. But uh, uh, but you know, no, I went up and and I visited Pepperdine. I visited Alan Fox. And we had uh, some great conversations, and uh, you know, ultimately, you know, I, I knew that was that's where I wanted to be. And you know, and I have to say, Alan was a really big part of that because I, I liked, you know, I liked his approach to the game. And we talk about, uh, and or we will talk about the success you had in college. But I'm just curious on your perspective now that you see it uh, from the coaching angle as well as having experienced it yourself. For players who have aspirations in tennis, maybe even you know beyond college professionally, would you recommend to them taking at least a year in college? You know, no matter what your goals are, would you say, you know, no matter what, you will see a benefit from your college tennis experience? I really, I would recommend that highly just because, you know, it, it's, it's a great year or two or, or however long you stay to, to grow up. Um, also to experience tennis on a little different level. I mean, for me, you know, growing up as a junior tennis player, I mean, you know, it, it's, the sport is it's kind of a lonely sport, you know, growing up. You know, it's you and your parents and your coach, and you go to tournaments, and that, you know, that's that's it. And um, with college, it's a whole different game, a whole different experience. Uh, it's you're a team, you're part of a team, and you have you have mates cheering you on, and you're cheering your guys on, and it's 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 an awesome experience. So, yeah, I mean, I, I mean, a classic example of that was um, while I was there, Brad Gilbert. Uh, BG, he played uh, he played at Pepperdine for a year uh, while we were there. 
And that gets me us. Yeah, that transitions us perfectly into your time at Pepperdine. You know, you, you talk about him. I, I have to ask because you know we've seen what Brad Gilbert has turned into now. Obviously, he is one of the uh, known personalities in tennis. You know, did he have that same sort of flair in his personality that we see now when he transferred into Pepperdine back in 1982? Oh, he certainly did. He certainly <laughs> did. And, and I and I have to admit, you know when. When we heard that uh, Brad was coming to uh, to the team, you know his reputation in the juniors was maybe not so great. Growing up in northern Northern Cal, his reputation certainly preceded him. But I have to say, after that year, I mean, he turned out to be one of the best team players going. I mean, every you know, best friends with everybody. Um, you know, everybody's biggest cheerleader. You know, he fought his guts out while he was there and did, you know, obviously had good results. But, um, you know, a great, great team player. And you, you talk about that 1982 season. I just want to, you know, I, I promise I'll get back to you making the finals and what that experience is like. But I'm just so curious because, as I mentioned, Ed Nagel, my former coach, used to rant about this all the time. And he used to call me and gave me my last name. Or, you know, my name's Alex Gruskin, and he doesn't like to say full things, so he would always call me Frisky. And he'd go, Frisky, you don't even understand. In college tennis, we used to play two out of three double sets. We used to play, you know, everything out full, two out of three sets in singles as well. And, you know, all of those rants, I'm like, all right, Dad, I've heard it before. But you have a, a, that similar perspective of back when you played college tennis, it was two out of three sets for everything. Uh, what was that adjustment like? And do you, you know, are you a fan of that format? Would you like to see them go back to that? Or do you think that just takes up way too much time? You know, there's something to be said for longer matches. Um, you know, it, it, it allows for more ebbs and flows in the match and, and, you know, comebacks and, and, you know, good gritty stuff like that. And so, you know, there's really an argument there. However, uh, especially in college, I mean, time is limited. I, I, I totally get it that you kind of have to get it in, you know, get it in and get it done. So I can see why, you know, things have been shortened up. I, I totally get it. Yeah, and, uh, you know, it's funny because I feel like back in those days, and you know, to your argument, I completely agree with you. I just think the attention span now—you're never going to get people to stay at a match for four hours. It's just too hard to do. Uh, the NCAA com- came out with some stats recently. They said over the ITA kickoff weekend, the average men's match was about two hours thirty-nine minutes. That's about right. You know that that that's about what you want out of your live sporting events, but. You know, looking back at your time playing college tennis there, your team has a ton of success. You guys get a couple fourth-place finishes, a couple quarterfinals, and then obviously that finals appearance in 1982. Uh, you know, looking at what are your fondest memories from those times? You know, I think just really being with the guys and, you know, traveling with the guys. And, and um, you know, I, I still, when, I, when I'm traveling through airports and I see – student athletes walking through the airports with their sweats on and whatnot. I'm looking at them, looking at them going, thinking that, you know, these are some of the best times of your life that you'll have, you know, these, these, um, the travel days and the matches and the, and the battles that you'll have against, 
the uh, your competitors, and that's you know, and that's it would that's kind of foreign to again a, a singles. Uh, I mean, a um, a tennis player outside of college. So, um, yeah. No, I, I I completely agree with you. I would say, you know, that, you know, um, I didn't get to experience that myself, but everyone we talk to speaks about that fact. You always look back, it's the time you spend with their team. I think Jared Hiltzik said in his wedding, it was all of his teammates who were his groomsmen. And that's the sort of thing that's so important because eventually, you know, the ball stops bouncing for everyone. Yeah, absolutely. And and we, and actually our, our, a few guys, several guys on our team have, um, stayed in touch and, and that's you know that's great to talk to uh, you know former teammates and hear about their kids and you know what they're doing in college now and so on and so forth so yeah that's that is that's really um, you know the big takeaway from from that experience and I'm not sure our listeners are that fond of 1980s college tennis, but as I mentioned, it's important to me, so I do want to ask you a couple of things. I'm going to put you under the gun. Your team's had a ton of success, as I mentioned. 1980, you guys come in fourth. 82, second place. 83, fourth again. Uh, 84, you guys come in second, and obviously that's the year you and Kelly win the individual doubles title. Which of your teams would you say was your best Pepperdine team? <laughs> that, that's... That's really hard to say because, uh, you know, when I came in as a freshman, I was 17. I was a young freshman. So when I came in, I mean, you know, these the guys, these, uh, you know, fifth-year seniors were, were um, you know, grown men, uh, <laughs> you know, and, you know, Eddie Edwards, you know, he had a win over, McEn- over McEnroe that, that season. And, you know, I mean, I mean these are – you know, I, I was just a young kid, and um, so it was fun watching those guys and, you know, trying to break into the, the lineup there. But, um, you know, in, in 84, when, when, I, when I won it, I really – obviously those, I, those guys were my, my contemporaries, and um, I, I really felt that um, we had some players. <laughs> I'm sure. I, have to, I have to answer your question. I think I'll, I'll go with the uh, '84 team. <laughs> uh, oh, if Brad Gilbert hears that, he's going to be devastated. He goes, I'm, "I made the finals and singles. That wasn't good enough for you, Jerome." Uh, no, he's no, BG. He's a, he's a great guy and a great player. <laughs> no doubt about that. Well, then, I do want to ask you one more thing, and it's a fun segment I like to do with our uh, guests because I have a theory. Because tennis is an individual sport, you just remember who you played in the biggest moments uh, in in those, you know, you're so focused on your opponent, you find reasons to just motivate yourself. So I want to give you a little bit of trivia. Sound good to you? Uh, sure. <laughs> Uh, all right, we are taking our listeners back to 1984, May 12th through the 20th, Athens, Georgia. The number one double seed of Jerome and Kelly Jones reached the double semifinal. Do you remember who you played and what the score was of that match? No way. I can only tell you the finals. <laughs> well, if I if I give you a hint of the school, if I tell you it was Stanford. Uh, let's see. Uh, let's see, Davis, now, um, give me one of the players. Jim Grab. Is it Letts? Letts and Grab? There it is, John Letts, three six six four seven five. Oh my, all right. <laughs> and then the finals, you can remember that one? Yeah, Leach and Posset. 
Yeah, you remember the school too? Oh sure. Oh sure. SC. And the score? Uh, four and four. Ah, uh, that nope. Neither set. What? What's that? No, that neither one was. It wasn't four and four. Three and six. Oh, three and six. Oh my. Okay. Well, <laughs> I, you know what? Uh, I remember the W. That's the main part. <laughs> And, and I remember, and I remember we beat SC in the finals. Our, our our arch rivals. Yeah, those were the teams because you you guys were, I believe, West Coast Conference. So was it always UCLA, USC, Stanford? Uh, com- who you're coming up against? Oh yeah, absolutely. And do you remember those rivalries fondly looking back? Uh, some more than others. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, SC was just always a. Uh, it was just always bitter uh a bitter rivalry um you know we played them inside of our gym one time and and uh we had we had uh, i think we had some volleyball players calling the lines or something and, and there were some controversial line calls and then when we uh played them in sc they they gave away free beer or something and they were <laughs> heckling us uh so it was uh it was always pretty uh, pretty crazy Oh, that, that is what I love about college tennis. Now, you mentioned hooking. There's a recent controversy in college tennis in Ohio State player. There's a video replay, and it looks like he made a questionable call in a big stage of a match. And, you know, now that there's video of all these matches, it's a lot more evident. And, you know, these things become a lot uh, bigger when they happen because people can see it. But do you think hooking is something that's always gone on in college tennis? Um, yeah, <laughs> Yeah, probably yes. I'm sure. I'm, I'm sure it, it it has gone on forever. Um, even probably even more so in, in juniors, in, because there are not as many uh, lines people uh, roaming around. Oh. But uh, but yeah, that, that I remember the junior days when um, when we play a nine point tiebreaker. Uh, you know, it's six all in the in the third set, nine point tiebreaker, and the next, you know, you get to four all, and the next point wins. Oh man, you saw some questionable calls on that <laughs> final final point of the final set. Yeah. You know? Oh no, it it still happens today. Last tennis related question, then I promise we can get into the first break stuff, but. You know, as I mentioned, you have had so much success as a doubles player. At one point, you're top 200 in the world in doubles. Are you a proponent that to be a successful doubles player, you have to serve in volley? Because that's something I always grew up hearing. It's they were always serving in volleying. You know, absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. That, that's right. You get to the get to the net as quick as you can and close that point out as uh, as quickly as you can. And the lefties on the deuce, the righties on the ad, so that you guys can both poach with forehands. Uh, no, actually, I played the ad side. Really? Yeah, yeah. W- was it just a feel thing? You know, I listen. The, the key to doubles is finding a, a strong doubles partner, <laughs> and, and and I found I found Kelly, and <laughs> and he liked the deuce side. That's fine. That was fine with me. So uh, whatever side you like, pal, that's that's where you're going to play. And then so uh, yeah, so I and I was perfectly happy uh, playing the ad side. Oh, that's so cool to hear. Yeah, I agree. Look, I always say a doubles partnership, it's like a relationship. It's literally I'm with you at all times. We're talking all the time. We're fighting. We're trying to figure things out. We're touching each other with handshakes and high fives. It's a full-on relationship. So, yeah, I agree. It's just about getting the chemistry right, and then the rest will come. 
Um, and forced by Kelly and I had, had very good uh, chemistry on the uh, on the court. No, that was that, that was some, that was something special. Yeah, absolutely. It's one of those things that yeah. It, look, I'm romanticizing doubles relationships, but when you find it, you know. Trust me, people. Um, yeah, but moving on in terms of other experiences you've had with tennis that, again, make you so perfect for this first break uh, position. You know, First Break Tennis, it's a charitable organization. It's at the StubHub Center in Carson. The idea is, that, you know, delivering after school and summer programs, play days, early excellence, tennis training, all of these things to help expand uh, the sport and help the outreach to people who may not be exposed to it otherwise. And something you did in your past that just relates with this perfectly, uh, you were a part of the Arthur Ashe Safe Passage Foundation program in Los Angeles. Can you talk about that experience and, you know, how that helps you for what you're doing now? Absolutely. You know, I, I was drawn to the mission of the Safe Passage program years ago. And, I learned of the program that they had started in Camden, New Jersey, that Arthur and his best friend Bob Davis had started, and I was drawn to the mission. And I, I contacted Arthur at the time, and I said, look, if you ever decide to bring this program to Los Angeles, I'm your guy. And not, not too long after that, uh, I got the call. And so, it, you know... I mean, Arthur started the Safe Passage Foundation um, with tennis and life skills in mind. And I think when when he and Sheridan Snyder and Charlie Passarell started the NJTL program in the late 60s, I think the NJTL program kind of went in a direction that um, that um, he, uh, he wanted to focus more on life skills and not not so much on, on developing tennis skills. And that's why he developed that safe passage program. Uh, and I was, I was mission trained by, you know, Bob Davis, Arthur's best friend. So I knew exactly what they wanted out of that program, what they wanted from that program. And when I learned of first break, the mission is, is almost spot on to the safe passage mission. So it's, I mean, I really feel that it's my, it was, it's my calling to, to carry out uh, this type of mission. And to our listeners who aren't aware of what that exact mission is, and, you know, I kind of explained it earlier, but can you put, you know, in your words, what the goal of the First Break Academy is? Yeah, well, we, we target kids uh, in the, in Carson, California, and surrounding communities, we use mainly tennis and other sports um, to hook the kids' attention, to get their attention. And when we have their attention, we focus not only on sports, but life skills. Um, so we have a lot of fun uh, outside on the court, and then we get serious with life skill stuff, which you know, includes tutoring and, and uh, exposure to role models and um, off-court discussions and, and such. Um, so our, our goal is, is not necessarily to develop the next number one player in the world, but it's, it's to develop well-rounded young people. And can you explain some of the programs that First Break offers to, as you mentioned, uh, 
to d- help develop these kids? You mean outside, uh, besides the tennis? Yeah, just, or just, you know, what that schedule looks like, how kids can get involved in these sort of programs. Yeah, so we, we offer uh, after-school programming and uh, after-school tennis programming and uh, Saturday programming as well. And the kids, they come to the Dignity uh, Health Sports Park in Carson, uh, where our teaching pros are, are all stationed. And um, we, uh, we do the tennis. We have a tutor that comes twice a week. Um, you know, and that's one of the things that I'm charged with as the new executive director, and that is to expand the academic and, and life skills portion of the, uh, the program. And, you know, I see it kind of mirroring what, um, what we did at Safe Passage. And so, uh, so they, they get a, a good helping of tennis. And, you know, and also what we offer regarding the tennis is I, I know a lot of, a lot of programs, uh, such as the nonprofit programs, they have good intentioned people uh, running and teaching the kids, but oftentimes they don't have the ability to take the kids to the next level. Um, if we do get kids that are, are, have the ability to go to the next level, our coaches are of that caliber where they, uh, we can give them uh, more advanced coaching. Um, but, um, you know, so that's, that's a, a, a very nice element of the program is we're able to take the kid from um, from beginner all the way to advance, if that's what the, um, the the kids and the parents would like to do. Uh, but uh, but again, while focusing, uh, keeping in focus the the life skills part of it. I mean, like, when, I, when, I, when I say life skills, I mean just simple things like you know, example would be you know how do you introduce yourself to someone. You know, you, you look them in the eye, you extend your hand, you shake their hand firmly, and, you know, the, just simple, basic things like that. Um, so that's, you know, that's, that's part of what the program offers, and that's something that I'm going to be uh, enhancing even, uh, even more as, uh, as I move along with the program. And I think a stat that's a testament to the preparation that goes on there. I'm scrolling through the website, and I see 80% of First Break Academy students receive scholarship funds uh, as they go on through their path. I just think that emphasizes, you know, the preparation that goes into it is pursuing uh, college, whether it's through athletics, through whatever you're <clears throat> through whatever you're doing. Sorry about that. Um, something that's emphasized at the academy. Absolutely. Um, you know. Let's let's face it. Very a very small percentage of kids, whether they're playing basketball, football, soccer, or tennis, are going to become professional tennis players. And so I see it as our job to prepare them for um, you know for life. And if that life includes being a collegiate player, they're there are tons of collegiate playing opportunities all over the country. And, you know, we we're you know, we're very excited to, uh, to get them to that level. If they choose, if they want to work that hard and we're very clear to them, you know, if you want to get to that level, um, 
you know, we, uh, you know, it's, you're going to have to work for it. It's, it's not a, it's not a layup. And in terms of facilitating people to help them get to that level, what has the relationship of the academy, and I know you haven't been there that long, but still, just in terms of your perspective, I mentioned it was the StubHub Center. I should say it's now called the Dignity Health Sports Park. Uh, in partnering with the USTA, what have those relationships meant for uh, First Break Academy? Well, it's invaluable because the uh, Dignity Health Sports Park is a world-class facility um and you know the la galaxy uh, they have um, their headquarters there um the right now the la chargers play there um the usta uh, has national uh training center west coast national training center is right there um you know there are different sets of courts but uh it's you know we have track we have um Get the whole facility available to us. We have our, our little office space there. So that means everything. That really gives us a leg up on other um, programs that are trying to carry out this mission. So, yeah, that, that's a key part of it. Another incredible event I know First Break is a part of the L.A. Tennis Bash. Uh, such a cool event. Professionals are coming in playing mini tennis with all of these uh, you know, younger players, students of who are part of the First Break Academy. And uh, you see so many cool tennis personalities, the one, of course, who stands out the most in terms of their relationships. Nicole Gibbs, Steve Johnson, Pam Shriver. Uh, can you talk about that event and what it's meant to have players be so receptive to this sort of program? Sure. Uh, and and I, wasn't, um, I wasn't with First Break for the last event. Um, so I've just heard about it and read about it and talked about it. Um, and, you know, our, our founders, uh, First Break's founders, Rick Butka and, and Peggy Bott, um, you know, they uh, just, they do, a, have done a fantastic job of pulling that together and pulling in resources. Uh, you know, Pam Shriver is uh, a, a board member and very involved uh, with the program, um, and they are able to, you know, to get those players and those personalities, um, you know, to that event and turn it into a, um, a very good fundraising event for us so we can continue to provide these services to the kids. And in terms of providing the services for our listeners who uh, may not, or, you know, they, they've heard you allude to all of these things now, but I just want to get a formal pitch from you. Why should they take notice, even if they're not from L.A. directly, of what First Break Academy is doing? Well, I think I think the, the mission, uh, mainly, um, you know, we, we don't, you know, we're not just trying to... Um, to crank out the next best tennis player, but we're going into disadvantaged communities and grabbing kids' attention and and trying to um, help them become um, help them become uh, just uh, productive citizens. And so I think that's that's. I think what's mainly noteworthy about uh, this program. And 
and I completely agree with what you're saying. I just think what First Break Academy is doing is so special, as you mentioned, trying to grow our sport in whatever way possible. Even if these people, you know, these people meaning these students, only become casual fans of the game, casual players, just to have that sort of thing attached to your life, that sort of hobby, that sort of lifelong skill that you can always turn back to, uh, so important, and it's such a cool part of what makes tennis such a special sport is that you can continue to play it for the rest of your life. Now, again, uh, I want to be conscious of your time, and uh, you know you were so kind to talk about the college tennis stuff with me, so I want to let you uh, give a plug for where our listeners can find out more about the First Break Academy, how they can get involved if you know they're captivated by this mission and want to start helping. Well, uh, you can go to our website at um, first one the number one break uh, dot com and um, on the website and it's the website has a, a, um, a link to where you can contact us and uh, that will put you in touch with me actually that's under development right now so but uh, ultimately you'll be able to get to me and have all sorts of uh, volunteer opportunities we're always um, looking for funders to uh, to help us carry out the mission, um, and you know I, I can be contacted directly uh, at uh, Jerome at firstonebreak.com. And I hope our listeners do take the time to reach out because, as we've mentioned, what you guys are doing, such a special program, such a cool event. Uh, Our listeners in the L.A. area especially, please get involved. But even if you're not, this is the sort of uh, program that's so great for our sports. So please, you know, go check out that website. I want to do one more thing before we go. It's something we like to do with all of our guests, a rapid-fire segment. Give our fans one more chance to learn a little bit about you. Sound good? Sure. All right, Westoff, if you could, cue the rapid-fire sound effect. Okay, so you made the, well, it was very kind, but potential mistake of sending me your resume so that I could learn a little bit more about you. So I may use some of those facts against you now. I apologize. Uh, but I have to start with this because this was the uh, just fascinating. Comprehensive drug testing. You are a professional sports drug testing collector and trainer. What's that like? You know, that's, it's funny when, when I tell it's a little side job that I've had for like 13 years. And, um, so the company that I work for comprehensive drug testing, they, uh, have contracts with major league baseball, the, uh, national hockey league and, um, major league soccer. And, um, we essentially do help. We help those leagues keep the games clean. So, yeah, we, we go in, I go in and, and uh, drug test um, professional athletes. Is there any dirt you're willing to dish or no? No dirt you can dish. Now, that'd be a HIPAA violation or whatever the equivalent is. Never mind. Scratch I have, that. I have a ton of dirt, but you're right. <laughs> I, can, I cannot talk about it. All right. And I won't even ask you off, Mike, because I don't want to get you in any trouble. But I had to mention it. That's awesome. All right. More generic questions. Favorite meal? Favorite meal? Mm-hmm. Um, let's see. Uh, Thai food. Ooh, good answer. I like that one. Uh, favorite tennis player? Well, who? you know, I, I worked for Head Penn for 13 years. 
So, you know, I had to co- toe the company line and say Novak. And, and, I, and I am a big fan of Novak. I think the guy has a ton of personalities, obviously a great player. But, you know, now that I, I'm not with Head Penn anymore, I have to say, Roger. I mean, he just, what a, <laughs> what, what, I mean, his game is just, you know, it's just, it's flawless. And, and you know, it's, it's stood the test of time. And uh, the way he carries himself, love the way he carries himself and what he does off the court. So my number one uh, guy would be Roger. Oh, great answer. I uh... Well, let me say, the way you enunciated a great answer, everyone says Roger Federer. I grew up a huge Murray fan. When he won Wimbledon, it literally felt, and I'm not even British, but it felt like we conquered the world, and it was just a great moment. But anyone who answers Federer, I can totally understand why. All right, this is another uh, tidbit from my research. You were named in Tennis Industries 40 Under 40. How'd that feel? Well, that was pretty cool. That was, it was very nice. It was very nice to be recognized, you know, for the uh, the work that I was doing when I was a young buck. Oh, a <laughs> young buck, forty other. All right, we need to define young, I suppose. But here, I'm I'm a lean, mean twenty three. So what do I know? Um, <laughs> all right, I saw a photo of the backhand slice. If you could take one shot out of the game of tennis, what would it be? Oh, let's see. Um. I could take one stroke, one shot out of the game. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Um. Moon balls. It's <laughs> a good answer. I've, I've, look, given uh, look, there's a lot of moon balls in junior tennis, so I suppose I could understand why it gets frustrating. Absolutely. Yeah. All right. Have the courts slowed since the '80s? Uh, you, you know what? I, I would have to say yes. Now, I don't play a ton, but um, I, I, they probably have. I mean, you know, going you know back in the eighties, we I was a serve and volley, or serve and volleying was was the thing back then, and and uh, you know, no one does that anymore, it seems. And so they, I think the courts are geared more toward the baseline players, and so I would say yes, they have. Led me to my next question perfectly. Is the servant volley dead? I, I, with the style of play nowadays, I think uh, in singles, I believe it is. Now, I often, you know, look at the way these guys rip the ground strokes, and and I wonder, gosh, were they were they hitting ground strokes that hard when I was, you know, playing? <laughs> But uh, I mean, there's there's no way. Well, it seems like every time somebody approaches the net nowadays, they they're destroyed instantly. But um, you know, with the with the unbelievable passing shot. But you know, I gosh, I hate to say it, but I I think the serving volley is kind of a thing of the past, at least right now. No, I I miss it. Uh, here's the the counterpoint: is do we want a bunch of Milos Raonic's? Probably not. But yeah, it's great when players. You know, I love it as a changeup of style. Okay, this question was ed, uh, asked by a guy we'll call Ned Daigle. Who wins this matchup, Jones Jones or Baxter Nagel? <laughs> uh, let's see, Baxter Nagel would uh, uh, they would come very close, <laughs> but but uh, Jones and Jones would win that match. <laughs> Even now, you think you guys get on court now? Who takes that? Oh, now, oh boy, oh boy, 
Well, I know Kelly still plays. Right now, I'm going to have to – and I know that uh, Nagel is on the court teaching. Baxter plays. Uh, So, uh, boy, unfortunately, I'd have to say that – they would they would get us as good as Kelly is. I would be too much of a hindrance for him right now. Oh, that's funny. Well, we can wrap things up there, uh, Jerome. I I just want to thank you again so much for taking the time to come on the podcast. What you guys are doing at First Break Academy is so cool. And again, I implore our listeners, please go check that out. It's first the number one break dot com. Uh, thank you so much, Jerome. And hopefully, we'll get the chance to talk to you again soon. Alex, thank you so much for having me. That was fun. I really appreciate it. Yeah, you mentioned, you know, we were talking off, Mike. You weren't a podcast. You'd never done something like this before. You were a natural. It was great. <laughs> okay, thanks. Appreciate uh, it. Yeah, of course. Well, take care, Jerome. All right. You yeah, too. Bye. Bye-bye.